how are we doing? Okay? Filled with the Brahma Viharas. Lots of loving kindness and compassion. It's so nice for me to walk in in the midst of all this, right? could be a retreat where you're sitting there suffering a lot, but instead you're practicing all this happiness and joy. So, mudita, sympathetic joy, appreciative joy, joy in other people's joy, and joy, period, joy in general. This is what the Buddha said. He said, Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. Joy is such an important part of the spiritual path. And this mudita, the sympathetic joy, is it's considered one of the highest spiritual qualities that can arise. It's considered to be something that is extremely difficult to practice. So if you're having a hard time today and it didn't feel like it was cultivated so easily, it's, it's because it's supposed to be hard. Um, I like to think about the people that I know who just really represent this quality of sympathetic joy. I don't know, some of us may have friends where you, just, you tell them something that's going on in your life and there's this immediate response of joy to them, to, in them, to you. Like they're just, they just rejoice in your triumphs. And this is, this is that quality, this, this kind of naturally arising joy in other people's good fortunes. I remember years ago, I was, um, for years, and actually I still do, I was teaching retreats for teenagers. And um, I remember this one retreat where the teenagers are actually doing five days, just like you are. And they would sit through the five days, and at the end, there was a lot more interaction, they would talk and so forth. But at the end of the retreat, we would have this kind of ceremony with the kids, and they would come up, they were 14 to 18 year olds, and eat, there would be a bell in the center, and we'd surround this whole altar with flowers. And they would come up, and they would say, one by one, something that had moved them, or what they had learned, or what they got out of the retreat. And they would say this, and then they would ring the bell. And it was so amazingly moving, because each one had this, that they were just touched in some way by the retreat. And to hear a 15-year-old, who usually hates everything, right, talk about how much joy they got in practicing metta, or in learning to be mindful or connecting with people they loved. And, um, and I remember sitting there and my heart felt like it was going to explode. I mean, it was just so much metta. And, but really, it was mudita. I just felt so happy that they were getting this wonderful experience. And it was the sense of wanting their liberation and feeling and rejoicing in them, stepping on this path in whatever that way that meant to them. But just this, this sense of... Um, extreme happiness. I think it was the strongest time I'd ever felt mudita. And I remember, so all the teachers could get up and I went up and I said, I'm having so much mudita that I feel like I'm going to explode. <laughs> and I came back and my, um, the person I was teaching with, Michelle McDonald, some of you know, she leans over to me and she said, equanimity. <laughs> so that's coming tomorrow. <laughs> 
all of these Brahma Viharas, they need to be balanced with equanimity. Otherwise, they can get out of balance, like I was feeling in that time. And at the same time, there was so much pleasure and sweetness in taking joy in that experience. So, so we, have the, we have kind of two versions. That's what I've been talking about today. The joy of um, joy in other people's joy, the appreciation of other people, in, of, in the rejoicing in their good fortune. And then the second kind is just this natural joy. And I like to think of mudita really as that as well, not just the, um, not just the joy in someone else's joy. And it's much broader. And if you look at the Buddhist text, you'll see that that's quite, that, that's very true. That seems to be what they were pointing to, like a much broader joy, although it's more traditionally narrowly defined. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, he said, I can find it. He said, some commentators have said that mudita means sympathetic joy or altruistic joy, the happiness we feel when others are happy, but that's too limited. It discriminates between self and other. A deeper definition of mudita is a joy that's filled with peace and contentment. We rejoice when we see others happy, but we rejoice in our own well-being as well. How can we feel joy for another person when we do not feel joy for ourselves? Joy is for everyone! Exclamation point. Um, and, and so this is an important quality, a piece about joy. It, it, it's coming from within us. And I really, I like to think of it as it's, it's, it's the birthright of all of us. It's this natural state that can be occurring that, you know, you see it in children all the time. You see that quality of little kids unencumbered by growing up by the hassles of, you know, of, of socialization. And you see that incredible joy in every little quality. And maybe I'm hoping you had moments today where you were outside maybe and you felt that way that a child might feel like you're looking at that lizard as if the very first time. So it's this natural arising. It's also a state that when we talk about the seven factors of enlightenment, and some of you are familiar with that particular teaching, but it's a teaching of both the qualities that lead to an awakened mind and also the qualities inherent in awakened mind. So they include things like concentration and equanimity and calm and energy. But one of them is usually it's called piti, P-I-T-I, it's usually translated as rapture, but I've heard it translated quite often as joy. And to me that means that an awakened mind is filled with happiness. And you've probably had tastes of your mind being clear and open and spacious and there was this sense of joy, just it it might be a subtle joy, it's not necessarily like that big joy like I was describing in that um, experience with the kids, but more this subtle sense of um, happiness that that can be quite natural and um, and really each time you feel it for me it's it reminds me when I'm really tuned in that this is a this is a state that's present in an awakened mind so tapping into joy just on a regular daily basis not when it's joy over like oh your favorite tv show is on or something but joy (laughs) when um, you know it just naturally arises the happiness that occurs for being human being alive this is part of an awakening experience. So joy can be in the midst of life, in the midst of the yuck of life. When life is difficult, we can experience joy. I remember talking to a friend who had been doing a lot of meditation practice, and I said, and she had hurt her knees actually doing meditation. And um, 
I said, how are you doing? And she said, well, my body's a mess, but my heart is so happy. You know, and it's so interesting because we don't normally think that we can be happy and peaceful in the midst of difficulties, but we can. We can cultivate this quality of joy and it can be present for all of us in the midst of everything. Joy that comes from concentration. Joy that comes from adhering to your values, to acting ethically. The joy that comes from fearlessness the joy that comes from wisdom. It's all present in there. These are all these mental factors and states that are present that are available to us at any time. I think sometimes we don't focus this so much in the Dharma scene. We don't focus on joy so much. We talk more about suffering. You know, Buddhism is kind of depressing. It's all about suffering. Life is suffering. And... um, Actually, what's interesting is when you look at there's a whole there are all these old lists about the Buddha and what were his qualities and his names. They had names for him. They'd say he's the world knower, he's the awakened one, the enlightened one. That you know this whole list. But one of the names that he had was he's the happy one. And so that's that's really lovely to contemplate that when one's mind is so free, one is happy automatically. Another quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. He has a chapter in Being Peace called. Suffering is not enough. He says, Life is filled with suffering, but it's also filled with many wonders, like the blue sky, the sunshine, the eyes of a baby. To suffer is not enough. We must also be in touch with the wonders of life. They're within us and all around us, everywhere, anytime. If we're not happy, if we're not peaceful, we cannot share peace and happiness with others, even those we love, those who live under the same roof. Um, If we are peaceful, if we are happy, we can smile and blossom like a flower and everyone in our family and in our entire society will benefit from our peace. Do we need to make a special effort to enjoy the beauty of the blue sky? Do we have to practice and be able to enjoy it? No, we just enjoy it. So suffering is not enough. There's more than just suffering. So let's... First, take this joy that comes from rejoicing in other people's joy and, and look at it more closely, because this is the more sort of traditional look at mudita. And what I'm really interested in, and I think Richard was talking to you about this quite a bit, was what gets in the way? What gets in the way? You know, we do these Brahma Vihara practices and we come here and we think, oh yeah, I'm going to practice all this loving kindness and compassion, and instead all we get is anger and regret and doubt and worry and self-hatred, Right. And in, this is normal, and I, I, he, as I hope he was saying, I know he was saying that this is, it, these are purification practices. We get to see what is in the way of what we're feeling, and then we work with that, and that can be quite illuminating and liberating and exciting. So what tends to get in the way of our sympathetic joy when we're, pra- either both, when we're practicing and out in our daily life, there's a couple of things. Um, one is, do you know, or these, these are sometimes called the enemies or the near enemies, the far enemies, the various versions of what is not essentially mudita. So one of them is schadenfreude. You know that one? <laughs> Taking joy in other people's misfortunes. <laughs> this is not mudita, <laughs> just in case you thought it was. 
um, you know, your coworker does a horrible job and gets in trouble and you feel slightly happy about it. <laughs> Things like that. That that is not mudita, but it does come up, you know. It does come up. It may come up when you're even when you're practicing mudita. It may come up in re- regular life. It often comes up for people quite frequently. Um, and another one is kind of similar to this. Um, but it's it's more like relief that it's not you, okay? So something bad is happening to somebody else, and instead of feeling compassion or sympathy, you're like, thank God it's not me. And this one I have noticed quite frequently um, when you're driving along the freeway, and your lane is going fine, and you look to the other side, and it's just parking lot traffic, right? And you look over there, and you, and you think, oh, thank God, right? It's not me, hooray. But actually... Um, that's not having any. That's not having compassion. That's not. I mean, I'm making these very obvious, but but there there's these similarities around. We could be rejoicing in the good fortune of the people whose traffic lanes are going fast. We could be um, feeling compassion for the people who are stuck in the horrible traffic, but instead we're thinking, made it out of that one. Um, and then there's also. Um, so there's, um, for instance, you're, this, I'm, for some reason I have a few car analogies, but you're driving along and um, you want that parking space and somebody else comes along and they zip into it and they get it before you do. And what do you experience? Do you experience mudita, sympathetic joy? Yay! Oh, congratulations, you got that parking space. No. Usually, damn it, I got screwed, basically, right? That's the feeling. Um, so it's interesting to notice like where what what ballpark we're in and what's happening around around these areas. The other one, of course, is um, what my friends often call to call sympathetic jealousy. You know, so someone is someone has something that you want, and rather than rejoicing in their good fortune, you're feeling jealous. And oftentimes, I've noticed it's a mix. Like um, a friend of mine recently moved into this beautiful house, and I went over and I said, oh my gosh, I'm feeling this incredible combination of mudita and jealousy. You know, I would love to live in a place like this, and I, ca- I couldn't, um, and I'm so happy for you. And so it was, they sort of arose together, which was quite interesting. But it's often mixed. So jealousy, envy, this is the far enemy. When you're not feeling sympathetic joy, you're feeling, and you could be feeling envy, jealousy, any of those. And we live in this culture, of course, where the jealousy and envy is what is conditioned. It's what is encouraged. Competition is encouraged. So it's natural that so much of what naturally kind of, or automatically, let's say, habitually arises, might be a jealousy, envy, and so forth. A friend of mine was um, sitting a retreat with Joseph Goldstein, and um, he was meditating. It was a long retreat. It was a couple of months, and about halfway into the retreat, he started having this tremendous sense of jealousy, just, ah, just so much jealousy, and it was actually jealousy at Joseph. So Joseph is this Buddhist teacher, right? So it was. So in this, he said this was going on for about two or three weeks. He would just have so much jealousy because he thought, "I want to be a Buddhist teacher. How come Joseph gets to be a Buddhist teacher, <laughs> but I don't?" And then, um, and then he thought Joseph has a really nice house. He has all these people who love him. I don't have any of these things. And so the more he was sitting on this meditation retreat, the more he was feeling jealousy. And finally, he went into Joseph and he said. 
I really need to tell you, I've been experiencing so much jealousy. And Joseph looked at him and he said, jealousy, suffering, mudita, happiness, no brainer. (laughs) And it's really true. I mean, when you experience jealousy, you're suffering to a certain degree. There's, there's envy. I mean, you can feel these states and they, they come on us and they're often, you know, they're very fast. They're habitual. They take us over and they're um, painful. Whereas mudita actually feels really nice. It's just the transition from one to the other is not necessarily so easy. Although in the case of my friend, once Joseph pointed that out to him, he began to, he let go of that jealousy and was able to really open to rejoicing in Joseph's good fortune. I think jealousy is a very interesting emotion. And um, the reason it seems interesting to me is that it's so raw and so young. So when you feel jealousy, it just kind of takes you over. I know I experienced this. It's just like this little monster that comes out and, and says, I want that, and that's not fair, and I should have that. And initially, I used to be kind of embarrassed that I would be having jealousy. I shouldn't be jealous. I'm a good Buddhist, right? But what I began to see instead was that jealousy had good information in it. Jealousy had information about what I actually wanted. You know, it, so, so it kind of would cut through all my intellectualizations and all my sense of I should want this and I should want that and um, this is good for me, this is not good for me. But when I would see that, it, now every time I feel jealous, I say, oh, okay, what is it that I actually want that I may not have even admitted to myself that I wanted? So it's really a great place for investigation it's also a place of tremendous learning, I've found. Um, I had an experience a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, where I was working at a job, and um, it was interesting. I had In this job, I had been there a number of years, and I was kind of in this position of being a, the favored daughter position in, in a job. You know how we all act out our little family roles in our job. But anyway, I had, this, I had this position. And then this younger woman got hired, and she, and I could see that my boss really, really liked her. And I got really jealous and really mad. And wait a minute, I'm the, I'm the one that he's supposed to like. It's not her, it's me. And, I could, and I, it just really churned me up inside. And then I, I felt all this shame that I was even feeling jealous. This is stupid. Why should I be feeling this? Et cetera. And so I really decided that I was going to work on this as a practice. Like, could I find a way to have joy in her joy? And it wasn't easy. And there was lots and lots of weeks of sort of staying in this jealousy and then one day I remember having the jealousy kind of overtake me and really sitting there and saying I'm going to be as mindful of it as I possibly can and just feeling the jealousy in my body and the sensations and the movement and I just sat with it and sat with it for quite some time and watched the shifts and changes that it began to make inside me and suddenly there was a point where I realized that I was jealous of her because she, I saw her as a threat to me. But what it was really happening was that I was afraid to kind of step into the next phase of my life 
You know, like I was, I wasn't 25 anymore. She was 25. I was whatever. But, but she, I saw her as this, this threat to my position and that I, if I would step into my power, then it wouldn't be a threat at all. If I would step into the role as a more mature person, um, it, she wouldn't be a threat. And it felt like she was, this jealousy was this kind of guard dog at the door saying, no, you're not allowed to feel powerful. And when I finally saw that, it's just like the whole construct let go through the mindfulness and the jealousy evaporated. And I, it was like through that insight, the jealousy evaporated and suddenly the mudita could flow. It was so interesting. And it was really through the investigative power of mindfulness. So it's just, it's, I think these, um, I think these Brahma Viharas, whether it happens out in daily life or when you're sitting on the cushion, can be tremendously interesting to see, as I said earlier, what gets in the way of being able to feel sympathetic joy. And sometimes it's, um, it's an old pattern, sometimes it's a current fear, sometimes it's early childhood conditioning, sometimes it's just lack of practice. You know, all sorts of things get in the way. We don't, in, this is a culture where we don't practice sympathetic joy. There's no word in the English language for mudita. This is a Buddhist word. It's not, an, it's not obviously, it's not an English word. We can say sympathetic joy, appreciative joy, but, but it doesn't exist. It, makes, it leads one to believe that the construct doesn't exist in the, in the um, culture. So other blocks to sympathetic joy are things like comparing mind, um, conceit, scarcity mentality. It's really hard to feel joy in somebody else's joy when you're feeling this sense of scarcity. Oh, I'm never going to have something like that, and so why should I feel happy for them? Uh, self-consciousness. Any, you know, any, of, any of these are all, they turn the mind away from mudita. So how do we cultivate mudita? And one of the answers, of course, is what we're doing here, is just spending this day sitting here offering um, happiness and rejoicing in what in somebody else's good fortune. And this is great because, you know, you start off with someone easy. A lot of you have talked about starting off with animals or pets, right? It's so easy to send and ascend mudita, compassion, metta, any of those two animals because, you know, we don't have a long history of... Uh, fraught relationship generally with our animals, although not everybody. But um, So we cultivate, and as we cultivate it, it's kind of like a muscle in the heart that develops and expands, and it begins to arise more naturally. At least that's what I've seen in my own practice and in, with other people's practice. It can be very, very linked to gratitude. Okay, And this is really lovely if you can do some gratitude practice in the midst of all of this. And gratitude practice can come in so many forms. Gratitude practice can be uh, sitting down every day, even before you go to bed or when you get up in the morning and think of one thing or three things that you're grateful for and just list them and say them and feel the gratitude. 
So we develop the gratitude as an antidote to a mind that clings and hates and wants to push away. I do a practice, I do it a couple of times a week, where I visualize my all of my teachers. And I do it sometimes in, in the Tibetan tradition, it's called a refuge tree. Right? So I imagine this tree and I imagine myself at the root. And then all of the branches are all the different teachers I've had and the different lineages to which they belong. So I'll, you know, I'll picture um, uh, Joseph, who's one of my teachers, and then his teacher, and then her, his teacher's teacher, and so on. And then all the different lineages and the Buddhist and non-Buddhist influences. And it's this, even my high school teachers who I loved, you know, like every teacher who'd ever affected me goes into this tree. And sometimes what I do in the morning is I might visualize the whole thing quickly or I might take a branch and remember meeting these teachers. And But the sense of gratitude is so wonderful and powerful. And what it does is it, it, it adds, it contributes to more mudita in my life. So any kind of practice of gratitude is wonderful. Um, just even saying, telling your friends what you appreciate about them, reminding yourself of the people you love, what you appreciate, making it very concrete can add to more mudita in your life. The other, another practice with mudita for cultivating it is cultivating it on the spot when you notice the opposite is arising. So the parking space. You know, what, what I do sometimes is the parking space. Someone gets it and I notice myself going, you know, getting mad and then going, okay, Diana Mudita, okay, maybe happy. Oh, that's Meta. Okay, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you. Okay, until it actually starts to feel happy. Like you can really work it until it does. And because of my intention, because I'd rather have a mind filled with Mudita than a mind with envy or mind with jealousy, that I really work on it in that moment. And it works. And one of my friends has taught me this saying, which is, fake it till it's real. (laughs) You know, just say it and see what happens. Oh, okay, well, I don't really feel it, but I'll just work with it. I also work with it on the spot when I get that feeling that's like, thank God it's not me. You ever have that feeling? That could be the uh, driving feeling when you see the traffic. But then, oh, mudita, I'm happy for you, or I'm happy for those who are not suffering in this way, or sometimes it'll be compassion that I'll feel, whatever feels appropriate in that moment. And then there's deliberately cultivating sympathetic joy for people we have difficulty with. That's the super advanced practice. (laughs) Um, It could be uh, cultivating joy uh, for, I don't know, political figures that we have difficulty with. It could be for the person your enemy or whoever you, you know, just, but actually trying it, seeing what happens when you, when you, um, when you when you bring up this quality in relation to this person. It was Longfellow who said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. 
And so for me, it's about connecting. When someone has something that I want and I'm jealous or I can't, I can't imagine I would possibly ever feel any kind of sympathetic joy for that person, I try to remember that they want to be happy, the same with metta, and that actually there are certain things that are happening in their life that make them happy. And that makes me happy, even if I don't like the things they're happy about. That's the trick with mudita. You may not like what they're happy about, but you could feel the mudita anyway. So I had an experience, and I'm kind of, this is, was a bizarre experience for me, but I'll tell you. Um, I was watching the election returns. This was, you know, last year. And Bush won. And I'm sorry if someone has a different political viewpoint, but I'll just say this anyway. So, so Bush won, and I saw his face. And his face, he looked really, really happy. And the next thing that arose in my body was, I'm happy for you. Even though I was really opposed to him winning, I really didn't want him to win, but I felt all this joy, and the joy was that he was happy. And then the next thing that happened was I got completely shocked at myself. (laughs) I thought, what is going on here? But I think it was from the perspective later that it was that to me was showing me the fruits of my practice, that I could actually feel joy for someone who I disagreed with and, act, and had a lot of difficulty with. And yet I could take joy not in his actions, but in his happiness. Because I think that a lot of the suffering that people perpetuate on others comes from their own unhappiness. And so how do we cultivate people being happy in general? I mean, this is an interesting question around this. And to say it's not, with all of the Brahma Viharas, it's not about them, and it is about them. So if I can explain, when we feel whatever we feel, we're cultivating our hearts. We're developing these profound open-hearted responses to all of life, to suffering in life, to sadness in life, to success in life. We're learning to have these, these beautiful responses. And so in some sense, it's not about whether the other person feels your metta or gets the result of your compassion or even uh, you may not even really like the person that you're having difficult, that you are sending mudita to. But it's our heart that's transforming And I believe that there is an effect that's happening when we live in that way. And you know what it's like when you're in the presence of someone who is is very filled with mudita. You know what you're like. You, You feel loved. And what does it mean to be living in a world where we can have more care for each other? The other piece to this, and this I'm going to move slightly away from the sympathetic joy and more into joy in general, is the importance of cultivating joy, period. And this, this is, we can have a sense that joy in this really broad sense might not be a spiritual quality. And I hope I was indicating before that it was, that it was one of these factors of enlightenment and so forth. But it's, it's the, the joyousness, the humor, the happiness, all of these are so beneficial. I just found this thing. Hold on. Where did it go? Uh, okay, it says, this is, I don't, 
this was, I guess, in the newspaper. It says, animals are capable of laughing and experiencing emotions, according to research by neuroscientist Jack Paxap or something of Bowling Green State University in Ohio. He says his team discovered that dogs, chimpanzees, and rats all displayed forms of laughter and joy during play, behavior earlier thought to be reserved for humans. Pankep says that while adult rodents appear not to have a sense of humor, (laughs) young rats have a marvelous sense of fun. He hopes his discovery will lead to more understanding of the evolution of human emotions and brain chemistry, as well as emotional problems such as autism, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. So when I go back to it's our birthright to have joy, it's a birthright of rats to have joy. <laughs> if rats can have joy, we can have joy. You know, where is our life joyless? How can we cultivate more joy? It's a radical act to cultivate joy. And I lost. Ah. This is from Andre Gide. He says, Know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. I think that's great. Joy can infuse our practice. And what this does, what joy does, is it softens the edges of the practice If we get too equanimous, we'll talk a lot about equanimity tomorrow, but if we get too equanimous, it can get kind of dry, detached. And joy brings in, it brings in this this kind of juiciness to the practice. It makes it come alive. Um, You can really experiment with it in these days. If you notice yourself getting a little dry, then bring up the joy. Figure out something that's going to make you feel that brightness, that happiness in your heart and mind. I lived, uh, I lived in a monastery in Burma for a year, about five or six years ago. And I was meditating, doing, doing intensive Vipassana practice for that year. And so I was, it, I was very, very, very serious. You know, I was really kind of striving, working hard, very serious. But after a certain point, after about six or eight months, everything starts to be really funny because you're all by yourself alone in this strange country, in this place where you don't speak the language, meditating all the time. And if you don't laugh, that's it. And um, I remember there was this moment where I was walking to my to my little hut where I was meditating and it was right at the end of the rainy season and that meant that there were millions and millions of bugs and um, it was horrible. I'd never seen so many bugs in my life. They were just like, it just, all these different kinds. And every time, every time I looked, I would find a new variety. And I would think, I wonder what this kind of bug is. So, of course, I spent a lot of time in my meditation looking at bugs. But, but um, they, would, they would pool at the end of the rainy season, these gigantic, gigantic, um, uh, you know, pools of, it's hard to describe, but just pools, pool, I don't know, I keep saying pools because it felt like a, a pool of all these different kinds of bugs. And one day I was walking and there was a Burmese woman walking ahead of me and, uh, I mean, sorry, walking behind me and I'm walking, I get closer and closer and I look down and there's a big spotlight and under the spotlight was this gigantic thing with bugs and there was this beetle that was probably the size of this, this clock. 
and it was it was it looked like a wind up toy and it looked like it was going to attack and she's standing right behind me and she said she said what happened <laughs> and i said i said beetle and she said run <laughs> and i went running as fast as I could through this monstrosity, through this pool of bugs. And then she comes running after me. And then we were laughing so hard. And But the whole time there was all this mindfulness. There was all this joy and laughter about it. And this is like when the practice becomes, becomes light, becomes joy, even though obviously this was kind of our own version of things. But, but it, it, it lightened my heart. So whatever it takes, you know, I, when I teach meditation to kids, they often crack up. They think meditation is so funny sometimes, and it is. Adults, we would laugh a lot more if we weren't grown-ups, right? I mean, sometimes you just have to laugh. Have you ever seen someone fall off a chair in the middle of the meditation hall? I mean, it's not, it's not, I mean, they don't get hurt, we hope. But so, um, so anyways, joy, cultivating joy. Oh, I have a poem from Gary Snyder somewhere here. Sorry, I have too many things. Here's what Gary Snyder says. Ah, to be alive on a mid-September morn, fording a stream, barefoot, pants rolled up, holding boots, pack on, sunshine, ice in the shallows, northern Rockies, rustle and shimmer of icy creek waters, Stones turn underfoot, small and hard as toes. Cold nose dripping, singing inside. Creek music, heart music, smell of sun on gravel. I pledge allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the soil of Turtle Island. One ecosystem, in diversity, under the sun, with joyful interpenetration for all. Life. Joy. A piece of the practice of sympathetic joy is also the practice of merit, of dedicating merit, of sharing the merit. And this is a traditional practice that is in the Buddhist countries because there's a, there's a lot of beliefs attached to it around the more you cultivate wholesome qualities, um, do, do healthy things like practice precepts and give to monasteries and so forth, the more you create virtue or merit that's good for this life and for the next. And um, when I was living in Asia, there was so much merit-making and also so much rejoicing in other people's merit-making. So, for instance, if I were to offer you something, like I would, or let's say I gave a monk an offering of a meal, then people would come up to me and say, oh, sadhu, sadhu, and sadhu means well done. Like, you did such a good thing. And because they were receiving, they were feeling joy that I had done something meritorious. So rather than here in this culture where you, people feel joy when somebody, else, somebody gets a raise or something, you know, it's, it's more in the material realm, there they feel, there, at least in this monastery, there was this sense of joy in doing something that was about an open heart, was about generosity. 
And I remember having this one moment where I had offered a meal to the monastery, and it was not very expensive to offer a meal for, say, breakfast was about $20. So I offered $20, and they made this really nice soup, and it was great. And afterwards, someone came up to me and said, oh, sadhu, sadhu. And I said, oh, no, no, no. And they said, no, sadhu, sadhu. And I was embarrassed because I thought it was 20 bucks. So what? But actually, I was doing her a disservice. That she was, she was rejoicing. She was having mudita for my act of generosity. And that the correct response was, oh, was actually one of the responses could have been sadhu back. I could have felt joy that she was taking joy in my joy. And then you would often get in these sort of joy contests. Who could have more joy? Sadhu, 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 sadhu. So um, quality of developing, this development of this quality of mind, of joy, of open-hearted joy, whether towards others or um, just naturally occurring. What does it mean to be joyful in these times? What about what does it mean to be living in the richest country in the world and have lots of things that may give us sort of superficial joy and yet, you know, in this country the depression rate is out of control and to live in a country when with so much wealth when there is huge suffering on a global level and global injustice and poverty and shouldn't we really not be joyful? Shouldn't we be serious? I mean, this is actually this is, this is a serious question. I get this a lot. I do a lot of work with people who are activists or risk providers who feel guilty for feeling joy because everybody else that they're working with doesn't feel joy, and that's not, you know, I shouldn't do that. Or joy, shame, or maybe joy is escapism. And um, I really feel that all of the work that we do for those of us who are involved in work in the world needs to be infused with this quality of joy because otherwise we're just going to be so depressing or depressed. <laughs> um, I mean, I look at the Dalai Lama. You know, he's, everybody knows the Dalai Lama. is one of the happiest people they've ever seen. And yet the horrors that he's witnessed and the horrors that he continues to know are happening in his country to his people, the genocide of the Tibetan people, and um, he's still filled with tremendous joy. We can find joy even in the midst of difficulties, and actually the two go hand in hand, that there is joy in the suffering. And people like the Dalai Lama, they know it and they embody it. Most of you are probably familiar with Eddie Hillison, who was, um, you know, who was in a put in Auschwitz, and she died at the age of 29. But she wrote her journals, and they're really, really powerful. The book that she wrote, and this is a quote from her, and she was at, you know, in one of the most, the greatest horrors in all in human history. She said, "The misery here is quite terrible, and yet." Late at night, when the day has and when the day has slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire, and then time and again it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it; that's just the way it is, like some elementary force. The feeling that life is glorious and magnificent 
and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Even in the midst of suffering, of great suffering, joy can be present. So this I'll just end with, this is from an Ojibwe um, native or First Nations person. Um, And it goes like this. Sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. So let's sit for a few minutes. Sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I'm being carried across, carried on great winds across the sky. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 14, 2005. It is in all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.